Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and, and I'm Eric. Reading short and deep. High beams. Uh, this is an urban legend collected uh, in a book called Chills and Thrills: Tales of Terror and Enchantment, which uh, was published in 2001. I think it might be like a Canadian. Uh, textbook or book that's associated with selling to you know kids at school it's got great illustrations and um it's uh it's mostly you know public domain stories um traditional you know like annabelle lee's in there that's a poem and we get uh like ww jacobs style you know monkey's paw but um this one was the only urban legend in there and we've never actually done an urban legend exactly Although, um, I did remember, uh, that we did a story on spring Jack and spring Jack is an urban legend. Um, we, we picked a particular, uh, very early instance of it, but this is, this is that. So in the copyright information in the book, it doesn't list this story at all because there's no author it's an urban legend. And, um, this is kind of related to a, a, something that we normally attribute it to uh, editors. Like, uh, for example, we've done a lot of uh, fairy tales, or uh, as I prefer to think of them, folk tales. Um, and often we attribute them to the Brothers Grimm, who didn't write them exactly, except they did because they wrote them down. Um, and they collected them together, and they've been translated, and now we have them in text. So... Urban legends are a thing that exists. Um, they seem to spring up semi-spontaneously. And then there's other related things, like um, there's something on the internet, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Eric, called uh, Creepypasta. Have you heard of Creepypasta? No, I <laughs> Creepypasta <laughs> is uh, a phenomenon that started probably just as the web started. And um, it's basically urban legends but uh, written down online. And it actually seems to have its <laughs> title is sort of a corruption of copy-paste. So it fits <laughs> with the idea of urban legends. And uh, some of the urban legends that um, are, were written as copy-paste uh, copy creepypasta have been turned into TV shows. There's uh, one called um, uh, Channel Zero, and the first season of that is a famous uh, uh, copy-paste creepypasta called um, Candle Cove. And it was terrific. I didn't know it was a... When, when I saw the show, I didn't realize it was a based on an urban legend. But there's something about uh, this kind of story. And I've, I've, I've made a list, um, and I want to talk about how they, they sort of connect. I just want to ask sure. two things, if I may. And, uh, one, um, this in our text, High Beams is called mm -hmm. Urban Legend. My first question is, would you have called it that if it hadn't been so labeled? The second question, which is related to that, is exactly what makes something an mm -hmm. urban legend as you're discussing it, Jesse? Yeah, um, so I I guess I would have because I've, I've heard of urban legends. There's actually a movie called Urban Legend in which, uh, or Urban Legends in which the characters discuss urban legends and then are subject to them. 
Um, so I wanted to point to some like traditional examples. So we have Spring Hill Jack, who's a legendary figure who people claim to have seen. Often there's a a level of urban legends and creepypasta and um, folk tales that uh, maybe not so present with folk tales that we think that these are true stories. So Hensel and Gretel, we don't think of, oh, that's a true story. Uh, but perhaps that was more likely to have been thought when it was pre-written down. And so, uh, for example, there's a famous one, you know, um, Paul is dead, as in Paul McCartney is dead. This was a, a legend right. that Paul McCartney had been replaced after he died with a lookalike. <laughs> after uh, he died in 1966, in 1967, it was a new Paul McCartney. Uh, it seems to be that Paul McCartney's still alive, <laughs> but this urban legend persisted for a while. Uh, there's, and and there was proof of it too, right? If you play sure. Revolution Nine backwards, Th- that's how you check on it, right? Um, because they're right. they're telling you, but they're not telling you. Um, sewer alligators. <laughs> that's an urban legend that people would get pet alligators they would grow too big and the parents or the children would flush them down the toilet and now sewer alligators were alive and moving around in the sewers of new york um but actually i'm i'm uh, more interested in the ones that i was more familiar with and i i think i had heard about this story high beams it has another title as well um i had heard about uh this story but the ones that i heard about were more of my generation so um, there's one called uh, Polybius, <laughs> um, and that's about a video game, an arcade game from 1981, which uh, was put up in some arcade, and the people who played it became strangely addicted to it, and then uh, turns out that um, government agents, men in black, were coming uh, to service the machine and then took it away, and that it was like a part of a government experiment and uh what's funny is this gets turned into things like there's a movie called the last starfighter in which a video game uh arcade game is used to test uh many people so that their skills can be used to help uh defend some alien race from another alien race and then of course there's a movie called men in black which is inspired by so urban legends permeate uh, popular culture, and because they are not attributed to a single individual, they become public domain in a certain sense. And uh, one of the ones I didn't know had been an urban legend turned out to be a really good movie I had seen in in the 80s. Um, There's a musician, a real blues musician called Robert Johnson, who, it had been said, uh, made a deal with the devil at the crossroads to have the gift of uh, great guitar <laughs> ability and musical ability. And there's a movie called Crossroads in which a uh, young protagonist hears this story and then experiences it, makes a deal with the devil so that he can... And often the way urban legends are spread is it's a friend of a friend told me this, or my cousin's cousin told me this. So it's a true story. It's almost like a campfire story. Um, you're sitting around in, in the right circumstances and it just so happens that that reminds me of, and then we tell the story. 
So uh, another example, um, pretty famous one, is Walt Disney. <laughs> Walt Disney died and uh, was frozen in a cryo chamber. Or sometimes Walt Disney died and his head was cut off and put in a cryonics chamber um, so that he can be brought back to life. Now, <laughs> he has actually been interred, and you go visit his grave or his uh, ashes at a mausoleum in Los Angeles, but it doesn't stop people from saying it, right? It's, it's buried somewhere deep under Disneyland, perhaps in the Enchanted Castle. So urban legends have a um, sort of meta quality to storytelling, especially because I think there isn't an author attributed. Um, so the example of... Um, creepypasta called Candle Cove, which was about a uh, television show that people on the internet were reminiscing about that had been broadcast locally, um, is unattributed, but there is an author. But the author chose not to put the attribution there because that makes it more like a story rather than a true story. And so one of the phenomenon you'll find is... Um, if you go like looking for a, a phrase from Lovecraft that you remember, um, and you type that phrase in, it often pop up as a creepy pasta, and it's like a story called "The Doom That Came to Sarnath" by H.P. Lovecraft. But it doesn't say by H.P. Lovecraft; it just is the doom that came to Sarnath. And so, if you don't know it, it makes it more mysterious and possibly more real rather than you know, seeing the director's credits and the writer's credits at the beginning of a movie, it immerses you in a way. Um, so us taking it out of a book makes it less real in a certain sense than you just telling me the story of High Beams. And you, of course, you wouldn't even name it High Beams. You would just start reading the story. I think that's a cue. <clears throat> Julie left the college library late one evening after many hours of studying. She crossed the parking lot to her car, unlocked it, and put her stack of books on the passenger seat. Counting the books, she realized she left one inside the library on the checkout desk, so she closed the car door and ran back into the building. A minute later, she came back out with the missing book in her hand. She got into the driver's seat of the car and tossed the book onto the pile with the others. Then she started the car and pulled out onto the road. She had a long drive ahead of her. A while later, she stopped at a red light. A pickup truck stopped beside her, but she hardly noticed it. Tapping her fingers on the steering wheel, she waited for the light to change. Suddenly, the pickup driver honked. Julie jumped in her seat, startled. She looked around, but there were only two cars at the intersection, so she realized he must be honking at her for some reason. She tried to catch a glimpse of the truck's driver, but his windows were much higher than hers, and she couldn't see into the truck at all. Why did he honk at me? I didn't do anything, Julie mumbled, annoyed at how startled she'd been. The light turned green, and Julie continued on her way. She turned onto the highway. She had almost forgotten about the pickup truck, but without warning... Her car was flooded with light from behind. Squinting into the rearview mirror, Julie could just barely make out the same pickup truck that had honked at her at the intersection. It was right behind her with the high beams on, making it painful for her to keep looking into the mirror. Then they went off and the truck continued driving behind her with its normal headlights on. Thank goodness. He just about blinded me with those high beams, Julie said to herself.
but now she was beginning to get a little nervous about this strange driver behind her. They were the only ones on the highway at this late hour. The high beams went on again, then off. Forget this. I'm losing this guy, Julie decided. She stepped on the gas, but when she checked the rearview mirror, she could see that the pickup truck was keeping pace with her. Pressing her lips together, she focused on the road ahead and floored it. Again, another wash of white light from the pickup truck. Again, it went off. By now, Julie was definitely scared. A glance in the mirror made it clear the pickup truck was following her and closely, but she knew she was finally nearing home. Her only hope was to outrun him. She pulled off the highway into her street. She could see her house at the end of the block. Another flash of light told her that the truck was still on her tail, but she didn't look back. Screeching her tires, Julie pulled into her driveway. She leapt out of the car and ran for the front door almost before the car had completely stopped. She could hear the pickup squeal to a stop at the curb. Terrified now, she stumbled up onto the porch and pounded on the door in blind panic. Mom, Dad, help, she screamed. As the lights went on in the house, she turned to face who she was certain would be her attacker. Sure enough, the driver of the pickup truck had sprung out of his vehicle, but as Julie was about to scream again, the driver ran to the rear door of her car, yanked it open, and reached for something in the back seat. To Julie's astonishment, he pulled a man out of the car. The front door opened, and Julie's frightened parents joined her on the porch to witness the truck driver grappling with the strange man who had been in Julie's back seat. After a long struggle, the driver managed to punch the other man unconscious. As the pickup driver told the police later, he had seen the man with a 10-inch hunting knife hiding in Julie's back seat when they were both stopped at the intersection. He had tried to get her attention by honking at her, but she hadn't understood. So he had decided to follow her, hoping for an opportunity to help. And whenever the would-be killer had risen from his crouching position, knife raised to attack, the driver had frightened him into hiding again by turning on his high beams. So the other title for this urban legend is The Killer in the Backseat. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it's important... Uh, and a good choice by the editors here not to call it the killer in the backseat uh, because the killer in the backseat explains the story too easily whereas High Beams just is more reminiscent of what the story has happening in it and the point of uh, I was trying to make about how urban legends work is they don't have titles. They don't have authors. They are just stories that people tell to each other. So if, if I said to you, Eric, I'm going to tell you the story of The Killer in the Backseat by the uh, Sisters Grimm, you would say, oh, okay, I wonder what that's about <laughs> to yourself. Right. But if I say to you, oh, my, my cousin Julie, she left college late one evening after many hours. It was a really strange story, let me tell you. She crossed the parking lot, unlocking it and putting right? And then you get to the end, and you go, wow, did that really happen? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, uh, she's not really my cousin, but she, she's my cousin's friend. And she lives in Indiana. <laughs> and I go, wow. Well, i got to tell you something, Jesse, about the, the facticity of urban legends. Once upon a time, lo, these many years ago, I was at a conference in Southern California, and as a an activity designed for the pleasure of the attendees. Um, it was a science fiction conference. We worry about all sorts of futuristic things. 
we were given the opportunity to take a tour of, and I won't name the name because I don't want us to be sued, a leading cryogenics firm. <laughs> By leading, I mean that they actually were in business then Cryonics, and years yeah. from then. They are still in business, right, doing doing their thing and collecting their funds. And I went into their, their facility, and I saw their ewers, um, stainless steel. Um, there were a few long ones. Um, those were holding whole bodies at uh, liquid nitrogen temperatures and many more smaller ones that were holding heads at liquid nitrogen temperatures and we were allowed to stand on the catwalk as the uh, one of the managers owners of the facility unscrewed uh, like a the wing nuts on a, a, sh a submarine portal unscrewed the the tops on a couple of the uh, the smaller ewers and look in, and the liquid there was absolutely clean, and a little bit of steam rose from it as the air touched the liquid nitrogen. Um, but it was a beautiful, clean facility. And he pointed to one of those heads and said, that's Walt Disney. <laughs> okay. Now, that just may have been advertising, <laughs> but I'm not telling you that a cousin of a cousin of mine went there. And what I am telling you is this, and this is one of the reasons I think urban legends can work so well. I saw someone point to a head, and I could see only the top of the head, and say, that's mm -hmm. Walt Disney. You can go to that mausoleum in Southern California, and someone can say, and buried mm -hmm. here is Walt Disney. And the proof that either of those is true is about of equal weight. Uh, yeah. Um, in fact, they can both be true because he, if, if his head is uh, in the cryonics, you were, uh, his body can be in the, <laughs> in the mausoleum. Right? There you go. It's the magic of Hollywood. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I think the facticity so, so, so with this is, is sort of less important than – this the mimical power of the story, right? Well, in in the case of this story, um, I think the power lets us know that this is definitely a scribal story. This is not an oral tale that's just transcribed. There's all kinds of scribal intervention, just as we can tell that Grimm's tales are not oral tales for reasons we can discuss. Um, but, for instance, if they are oral tales, the heavy burden of Christian symbolism that we find in them would suggest that they must have arisen no more than 1,800 years earlier. But, in fact, we have earlier versions of these that go back to vegetation myths that are, that are a thousand years older than 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 Christ. So um, there are, and there are structural ways we can tell, and there are ways we can tell that this story is scribal as well. Doesn't mean it's not based on mm -hmm. an urban legend, but it is not itself. No, an somebody urban had legend, to, somebody had to type it up. Somebody had to set the type. Somebody had to give it the title High Beams and then give it the subtitle Urban Legend. For sure. No, I mean something more than that. I mean something more than that. It's not just a transcription. This is a story about class consciousness. It's a story about gender relations. And 
Maybe you were going to go there, so I no, don't uh, interrupt you. If you're warrant, uh, I'd like I, to. I, I, I'm sure I heard a version of this story before I read it. Um, and one of the things I notice about the, as you say, the scribal version is we have something happen that doesn't has, have to happen in an oral version of this story. And that is the, um, her leaving the library late at night and then forgetting a book and then coming back to her car. So the reason that happens in the version we've just had you read, I think, is so that we have a plausible explanation for why the killer was in the backseat. And uh, the number 10-inch, <laughs> the, the knife is 10 inches long, the hunting knife. That is a large hunting knife. Uh, 8-inch hunting knife is pretty significant. A 10-inch hunting knife, that's a very large hunting knife. Um, but we have to get specific when we are doing a written version of the story. She has a name in this story, and it's Julie. Um, it could have been a whole bunch of different names, but I agree with you 100% that somebody had to write this down, and in codifying it, certain things have to be smoothed out or made specific. Notice that there is no name of this university. There's no name of the city or the streets. It's all very generic. The only person with a name is Julie. Um, we don't, you know, find out if the cops are state police. We don't know what country this is set in. We can make some inferences, but that's not the point of the story. That this is, and and when I, if I were telling this as an urban legend that I either believed or thought I believed, or just wanted to spread, um, I could get specific and say it happened in Saskatchewan. Or I could uh, change the main character from Julie to Barbara. Uh, it, it doesn't, I think, matter so much on those details. What matters is the relationship between the guy in the truck, and it doesn't even have to be a truck, uh, and the woman who's being chased by the guy in the truck. I think that's the the key to this story's power, is that we think, at the end, um, she is made a mistake. She should have understood the honking, and she should have understood the high beams, and yet how could she be have expected to have? Uh, it, it's a highly implausible story, but it has power anyways. That's that's what I think the scribal version sort of less important than the relationships and uh, us putting ourselves into what what is going on? What's why am I being told this story? And then we have this relief at the end. Well, I, I think uh, there's one point with which I would disagree yeah. with you, but virtually everything else that you've said, I do agree with, but I want to extend it. So the one point with which I disagree is I think that, in fact, writers have it within their power to be more or less specific as they like. This could have begun, the co-ed left the college library, and then we never would have found out her name. And it could have been the killer with a hunting knife. It didn't have to be a 10-inch mm -hmm. hunting knife. So this is more specific than it needs to be. It could also be less specific. It, there are choices. We don't know what kind of pickup truck it is, um, but we eventually find out that it's too high for her to see the fellow's face. That's important because he can't signal with her, you know, like, point, look down mm -hmm. in your back seat. I mean, he can't 
right? So um, there are details here, but I think, as you say, um, she's made a mistake, right? She, she, and, and how could she not? And, and, but I'd like to explore how she could not mm-hmm. a little more. Julie is the name of a girl, right? It's not um, Victoria, mm-hmm. right? It, it's not Bambi. It's sort of in between, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's a girl. Um, and, and in fact, she's a college mm-hmm. co-ed. Um, she's a studious college co-ed because she takes home a stack of books and she's working late at the library and she still lives at home. She's a you good it. girl. And she, right. So she is, she is perhaps at least notionally, she's virginal. She does go to college. She is studious. And in fact, she lives in. I'm guessing, since it's a long ride to where she goes, um, somewhere in a neighborhood, she goes down that street. It's probably a nice middle-class mm-hmm. neighborhood. And she's a good girl who can have her own car at this stage of her life. So there's, there's some money involved here. The person who pulls up next to her at the light, she's just thrown together with this person at the in the public space, drives a pickup truck. It is the metaphor for working class. Looked at a certain way, it may even be a metaphor for mm. redneck. It's not the kind of thing you want your daughter hanging out with if you have aspirations to having a virginal co-ed as a child. So what happens is she immediately assumes that it's a man in the pickup truck. She immediately assumes that she is in some kind of danger, that he's harassing her, which of course a young college co-ed out late at night with a long drive home would feel when she gets there, right? When she gets there and comes running up to the house and pounds on the door and screams out, mom, dad, help. We know that she is in fact a member of a Norman Rockwell family. And if you try to picture what happens next, she stands there with her parents' behind her while they watch the driver of the pickup truck extract the would-be assassin and or rapist or whatever he was going to do extract him and beat him to unconscious unconsciousness the father apparently doesn't help the father mother nobody screams out stop you've gone Mm -hmm. too far They stand there and watch. So here we have mother and father and Julie on the porch, elevated, looking like a Norman Rockwell family, absolutely motionless, observing the working class hero come and beat into unconsciousness the would-be whatever he is, kidnapper, rapist, Mm -hmm. murderer. Who could have had a gun, by the way, but a knife is much more phallic. So what happens next? The the would-be hero tells the police what really went on. And that's Mm -hmm. the end. This is a story about how the privileged, although they may be frightened, really should understand that the lower classes really respect and want to help them. This is a story that says, no, no, no. It is true that girls, girls are our prey, but 
even when things are terrible, there could be a Galahad out there and you owe him nothing. He just does it because chivalry is not dead. It has just shifted to the lower classes while your father stands there immobilized. This is an urban legend, I think, about sex, about gender and class. And the class divide, beautifully in the first line, is along the lines of Mm -hmm. education. She left the college library late one evening after many hours of studying. Who knows what the pickup truck driver was out doing, but when he saw a woman in need, he was a nature's natural nobleman. This is a story that, <laughs> when I said it was scribal, I didn't mean someone just transcribed the telling of the story. Detail after detail is constructed so as to make this a a really beautiful urban fantasy of capitalist privilege. Yeah, um, uh, it, when this happens in a movie, um, it's a meet-cute, right? Uh, two uh, people bump into each other on uh, on a street corner, like uh, yeah, sleepless in Seattle style, and then they we spend the rest of the movie where the clash of their their different personalities or upbringings or cultures um, eventually leads to a happy reconciliation. This story ends where the meet cute uh, happens. Um, so it doesn't say, you know, the truck driver ends up marrying Julie or anything like that. What's so funny about this story is the would-be killer, right? We have no information about this killer until the very last paragraph, right? We didn't even know he existed. Um, what we do know is that there's this other character, the uh, guy who's high beams. And so the killer in the back seat is an inference, right? Uh, we aren't privy to the uh, interview when the cops have him in, uh, and they're grilling him. And, what were you doing in the back seat there? What was that knife for? Were you going to rape her? And, of course, it doesn't say rape, but that's the implication. She's being chased literally down the street. And the 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 high beams are are like eyes you know bright shiny eyes of a a wolf chasing her and the more she runs the faster she's chased this is very um fairy tale in a certain sense it is and yet uh what's so funny is 2001 that's a long time ago eric that's 21 years ago a lot has changed since then if you're going to tell this story today why doesn't she just pick up the phone and call the cops? It was not as big a thing back then. Not everybody had a mobile phone. And this originates somewhere in the 20th century because of, as you say, the co-ed nature of the uh, the woman alone on, on the road. That would not have been very common in the mid-15th century. Uh but that sense of independence, women being able to drive their own cars, it's relatively new in some countries, right? So it does depend on technology and social relations. And as you're saying, you know, this class divide, both characters have, uh, excluding the killer, have vehicles. One is a car, which is what a college student needs, and a pickup truck. That's for a working man. I really uh, liked reading this story over again uh, because 
the the on a first reading, the sense that, oops, she's made a mistake, and we will get the big reveal in the last paragraph, um, well, last two paragraphs, is overpowering. But once one comes to understand all of these other issues at play, why urban legends work, the nature of the class relations, uh, the choices that have been made by the scribe, on rereading it, it turns out to be a rather simple, stereotypical, but in fact, much better story because I am reading along with Julie being frightened and mm-hmm. knowing what's really happening. And so subsequent readings give us even more, which is one of the reasons that this particular urban legend has staying power because at first it's a surprise, but as you go over it and you reset it from the 60s to the the 2020s there's always more to say thanks very much for listening and remember you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep if you enjoyed this podcast consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.